Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 153, Perseverance. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. NASA is paving the way towards a sustainable presence on the moon and onto Mars. Though humans have never set foot on the red planet, we've been there many times. Most recently, the Mars InSight lander that went to the surface of Mars to understand the planet's quote-unquote vital signs, its seismology and heat flow, and whether the planet's core is solid or liquid. Before that, the Curiosity rover landed on Mars to explore the surface for chemical and mineral evidence of past habitable environments on Mars, searching for environments where microbes could have survived billions of years ago, or these habitable environments. I remember watching Curiosity's landing live, and man, what a thrill. NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory is sending a new rover to Mars. It looks a lot like Curiosity, but with a whole new suite of incredible instruments, many of which are in direct preparation for human exploration on Mars. We're talking instruments to test the production of oxygen from the Martian atmosphere, identifying valuable resources such as subsurface water, improving landing techniques, and characterizing Martian weather in a way that could help future astronauts that are living and working in the environment. So here to go into detail on this new Mars 2020 rover called Perseverance is Luther Beagle, Deputy Division Manager for Science at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Luther is also the principal investigator of the Sherlock instrument, one of the scientific instruments on Perseverance. Note that this episode was recorded prior to the most recent change to the launch date of Perseverance. For the latest information, please visit nasa.gov. So here we go, the Mars Perseverance rover with Luther Beagle. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Luther Beagle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a very exciting topic. I love uh, this is a very exciting mission, one of the top priorities for NASA this year, and it's it's coming up. Uh, you know, we're, we're releasing this episode on July 17th. Fingers crossed that we're still looking for that launch date. This is a big, this is a big mission. I want to start, before we dive deep into Perseverance in this mission, I want to start with you. Um, your interest in astrophysics, you have, you have many degrees in astrophysics, and I want to understand Kind of where that all began. Where where did this spark something that you wanted to dedicate your to, your career to? So I think that like most people, um, at least uh, in my generation, basically Star Wars is all, it had a really big <laughs> um, uh, uh, influence on me. Not only from the perspective of entertainment, but from the perspective of what could possibly be be out there. Um, I watched science fiction movies in the past, and I think everybody had grown up wanting to be a spaceman. We've, I've seen this. Uh, I remember, I'm just old enough to remember one of the last uh, moon missions um, and watched movies about Mars and things like that. But when you start thinking about all of the permutations of what could possibly be out in the universe, it's, it's really fascinating. And, and my interest went beyond just life. It went to what the stars are like and what the planets are like. But I, I always kept coming back to what was, what was life like, and that's uh, one of the reasons I am where I am. And 
I, that's got to be the genesis of of why you pursued physics and astronomy first with a bachelor's, right? Physics is, I mean, I've heard it described as just like the the language of the universe. Yeah, and and physics really is why things are the way they are, and and, and a lot of it's problem solving. And I like problem solving physics. You're uh, you're given a com- incomplete information, and you try to figure things out. And it really is it's very hard, very simple. Uh, all of electricity and magnetism really can be boiled down to four equations, Maxwell's equations. And then from there, you can build on everything else up there. And I, I always found that fascinating that there are things that you can, you know, figure things out uh, with incomplete knowledge. And, and that was always fascinating from a problem-solving perspective. And it also fed into my my interest in astrophysics and, and astrobiology uh, later on in that um, being a problem solver at heart, uh, physics allows you to go into other things and try to solve problems in those fields as well. Um, and it's, it was a fascinating uh, education. That's got to be where your uh, interest in astrophysics, just understanding how the universe works, how that intersects with Mars, which is the really the topic of today, is, is that's what this uh, Perseverance rover is going to be doing. We want to understand more about Mars. So how does that intersect, your, your love of astrophysics and, um, and, and Mars? Well, so Mars is the closest planet we have, and it's actually the most Earth-like planet. So when we start thinking about where, you know, understanding of where we came from, from, you know, from an origin of life and the origin of species perspective, Mars is it. Mars, we, we were close to it. We're able to access it. We're able to go down to the surface and, and touch it. Uh, we can see it. We know what it was like in the past because you can see evidence all over the surface of different processes that happen. So when you go thinking about looking for life, um, Mars is the, the first stepping stone of, of a lot of that. And it also enables us to under, try to start thinking for the first time of what actually is life like and what, how, how do we go look for it. Those are questions that, um, that have come up a lot over the past 30 years of my career that uh, people have asked, um, uh, and we continue to continue to talk about them, and that's why Mars is Mars is special. That's uh, that's a perfect lead into this next topic. You talk about there's there's evidence all over the sur- surface of this, and it's it's worth noting that this is not the first time we're going to Mars. We've we've been to Mars, not not exactly humans, but. Um, we've sent a lot of things to Mars to investigate that. Give us a brief history of what has been, how, how we've gone to Mars in the past through various missions. So Mars is probably the most visited and really understood planet we, ha- we have other than the Earth. Actually, it is the most visited and understood planet that we have uh, beyond the Earth. Um, we've gone there uh, since space age. We've, we've looked at it through telescopes. You know, we've all heard the stories about the canals of Mars and Percival Lowe and and, and people like that, um, and we under, we understand that we've been looking at Mars for you know hundreds of years, and the ancients knew about it. We started sending spacecraft as soon as the space age started. We sent the Mariner spacecraft to Mars. We thought we weren't exactly sure what we were going to see, and when we sent Mariner there, we we found a cold, dead planet. There wasn't life on it, like people had assumed there would there might be in the past. Um, but Mariner did see things like dried riverbeds and uh, other things that could only have been made through water processes. So we, we, we started to figure out very quickly uh, from Mariner, the Mariner series, that Mars at one point had to have liquid water on the surface and now it was no longer possible. So that brought Viking, uh, and Viking was launched in 1976. And uh, the Viking consisted of two landers and two orbiters. And what Viking did was Viking 
uh, took a map of the planet. The orbiters took maps of the planets, and the Viking orbiter, Viking landers went down, landed on the surface, scooped up some material, and tried to see if there was actual life associated with them. And we learned a lot from those experiments. We learned, one, um, you really have to understand the geology and chemistry before you do a biology experiment, which was a, a big deal at the time. But we also learned how to uh, operate on another planet, which was very important. Um, uh, from there, there wasn't anything on Mars till about till 1996, when we launched uh, Pathfinder, which was a small rover and a lander, a met station lander. Um, <clears throat> that was the first time we'd roved on another planet other than the Moon. Uh, Pathfinder went out and looked at a, a big giant rock, trying to get the elemental abundance of that rock. Um, from there, the 2003 mission, uh, the Mars Exploration Rover mission, sent Spirit an opportunity. These really were two field robotic geologists. And what their job was is their job was to go out and understand the geology of Mars. So one of the things we learned from Viking is uh, when the Viking tried to do the biology experiment, it came up with a result that we weren't 100% sure what to make of it. Uh, some people thought it indicated there was life there. The vast majority of people thought it was just a chemical reaction. But what we learned was is that we had to really understand geology and understand chemistry in order to understand biology. And so Spirit and Opportunity were two missions, two missions that went there to two, two different locations and started looking at the geology. Let's understand the geology. And what they found was they found a planet um, they found minerals, and they found they found environments that uh, were um, that were aqueous in nature, um, so that there was liquid water at, at both those landing sites uh, at some time in the past. And that's important because now we know that Mars, you know, we we can see different places on Mars that all had these same aqueous process associated with it. Uh, we sent Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter in 2005 um, that uh, was taking high-resolution high images of the planet uh, and did uh, um, uh, some spectroscopy of the planet as well so that we can understand um, from orbit where different mineral deposits were. Um, uh, we've sent MAVEN. Uh, that was a scout mission and InSight. They were two uh, smaller class missions uh, to look for whether Mars had earthquakes. That was InSight. MAVEN looks at, look, was looking at the atmosphere, trying to understand what happened to the atmosphere. We know Mars' atmosphere now does, can't support liquid water on the surface, but we know in the past it had liquid water on the surface. So what MAVEN did was MAVEN tried to figure out what happened to that atmosphere and what were the processes that moved forward uh, with that, which was really cool. And then Curiosity, which was the, the biggest rover we had sent to date in 2000. It landed in 2012, and that really was looking at chemistry. Uh, and looking for organic molecules and trying to determine whether the planet was habitable in the past. And by that, we mean um, whether or not the, the conditions existed on the surface of Mars that life as we know it could, could exist. Um, and Curiosity has found that at Gale Crater. Um, and that's, uh, um, that's pretty much the history. So that leads us to Perseverance, which is going to go do um, uh, basically look for potential biosignatures and try to uh, uh, cache samples to return uh, to, uh, to, to Earth later on. Yeah, that's a that's a huge milestone of and and a difference really with with perseverance. You went through this this beautiful history of all these different uh, rovers and landers and orbiters. I mean, we're, we've been we've been sending all these crazy instruments to really, as you said, this is the most studied planet other than other than Earth, and you can see why. I mean, we're looking at every, all these different elements that are really diving deep into the history. How this 
how this planet works, what's on it, um, the history of it. It's it's absolutely fascinating, and it sounds like it's it sounds like perseverance is just taking those next steps. Yeah, if you look, it, there is a there's been a thought process for the whole program, right? It's not just let's go send a biology mission, um, uh, in a, in a very complicated biology mission, but it's we're going to build blocks. We're going to understand this. We're going to understand that. We're going to understand, you know, geology, then chemistry, then understand the uh, internal dynamics of the planet, understand some of the history of the planet, and we build along the way. So it's a and and we look at different different sites along the way as well. So what happens is is that um, you you start adding all of these things together, and then what you're left with is you're left with a really interesting um, um, uh, um, uh, uh, history of the planet um, and a better understanding of the planet. Wonderful. Well, let's dive into um, perseverance, because um, you, you ended when you were going through this history of the different orbers, Landers, rovers, all those. You, you talked about curiosity. I understand a lot of perseverance is modeled after curiosity. In fact, if you look at pictures of the two of them, they look very similar. They do. Um, MSL, Mars Curiosity, um, is a rover that's about 900 kilograms. It's about the size of a Mini Cooper. Uh, it has a scientific payload um, that's very complex. Uh, Perseverance is more complex than Curiosity in several ways, but it is built on this. The nuts and bolts and skeletons are the same uh, from Perseverance as they are Curiosity. So whenever we go do a new mission, we have to learn from scratch how to do a lot of things. For example, um, you know, the wheels, how the wheels work, how tools interact, how the robotic arm interacts. So what we did with, with Perseverance is we took all of the stuff we learned from MSL and all of the stuff we learned from MER and, and added to it to make a more complex uh, uh, mission. But we use the same type of, of um, skeleton to actually do this. So from the outside, it looks the same. It has six wheels. The wheels are very large. I think they're 65 centimeters in diameter. It has a robotic arm. Uh, it has a mast. They kind of the mast looks kind of the same. The robotic arm kind of looks the same, except it's much more complicated. So our robotic arm on Perseverance is much bigger than the robotic arm, and it's much more capable than the robotic arm on MSL. But we had to learn how to do all of that with MSL so that we can do go to the next step and learn uh, on what we're doing on Perseverance. The other thing Perseverance has that MSL did not have is uh, we have the capability of caching samples. So the robotic arm has a core on it, uh, and that core will go out to different spots that we decided to pick, um, depending on the diversity of sites and things like that and how much scientifically interesting the sample has or sample is. And we will basically be able to capture some of that sample, put it in the tube, seal that tube up, uh, and then basically go back and pick it up later with a different mission. And so Perseverance does the science, uh, my instrument Sherlock, Pixel, SuperCam, MassCam, C, um, uh, RIMFAX, and Moxie, uh, and, and Meta. We all are doing great science uh, to characterize the sample, and then we're going to be able to bring that sample back. So that's the next step in Mars exploration is the sample return aspect of this particular mission. That's perfect. That's one of the that's one of the new objectives of Perseverance. But what I'm hearing with this with this skeleton, the the framework that you were talking about, it sounds like it's just uh, it, what Curiosity did beyond its own scientific missions was prove that the hardware was working. It had to do with a, maybe a sense of uh, that this 
technology, the way that you rove across the surface of Mars was proven, and then you just take the different scientific instruments and objectives you want to do and rove across the Martian surface just doing meeting those objectives. Is that the idea? That is the idea, and what happens is is that you you have um, it's a learning process the entire way. Um, you, you had to learn to walk before you could run. Hmm. You had to run before you could fly, and that's exactly what we're doing here. Um, <clears throat> the I used to work on on Curiosity, and I was part of the uh, we called ourselves the Surface Sampling System scientists. Uh, and what we did is we tried to figure out whether it was possible to drill on Mars and what, what type of materials could you drill into, could you not drill into, because this is all stuff we've done for the very first time. And that, it's really scary because you send something to Mars, if it breaks, it breaks. You, there's no way to fix it. There's nobody tape, duct tape with a spacecraft we used to joke about all the time that could just basically take themselves off, fix the hardware, and then just basically go back on. You, you, you're, you're stuck with what you have. Mm. And so you're really, really trying to figure things out along the way. And uh, um, by learning all of these things, learning how the rover operates uh, in this particular environment, a sand environment versus a rock environment, now we, we understand all of that. We can design things better. One of the things that MSL did do is we had a wheel issue at, at a certain point. We realized that the wheels were degrading faster than they were designed to. So we learned from that, and Perseverance has a new set of wheels. Um, and you could only do that by doing the in-situ the testing of that. Um, we understood how the robotic arm, robotic arm placement can be. So, how do we how do we put a drill down? Whether the drill interacts with the rest of the rover in a bad way. So now we can do a core, which is a more complicated uh, uh, piece of equipment. So you, you keep learning along the way, and you keep becoming more and more sophisticated. I I've, I think that MSO is the most complicated mission ever flown. Um, a robotic mission ever flown, and perseverance is more complicated than that. So we keep adding and we keep getting better, which is what we, what we, what we in NASA tend to want to do is uh, always do always push the envelope. That's incredible. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, strides, and I, and I could totally see the logic of wanting to. Um, you, you, it's it's the ultimate test, right? Those wheels on on Mars. It's the ultimate test for the wheels. You learn from them and you make them better for the next uh, for the next mission. It's it's perfect. Um, talk about some of the uh, just general design features of, I guess, a, a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of perseverance. Things things that make this the the right. Um, type of rover. I know. I know. Just you know, I was really into Curiosity in, in 2012 uh, with the landing. It was just such a such a big event for me, and um, I was really fascinated by the wheels and just this trade off of torque and speed and and wanting to get over some of those rocks and stuff like that. So so some of those engineering like design elements of of how how Perseverance will do the roving on on Mars. So the way Perseverance is going to do it is, is, is much like. Uh, uh, Curiosity did, um, with some added exceptions, which I'm not 100% sure are actually going to work. Hmm. Not work, but um, be, be implemented, because working is a different concept. Um, we have the large wheels, and what the what large wheels will enable you to do is, is not worry about the number of, it really reduces the number of hazards in a, in a particular site. As you get closer to the ground, bigger rocks become problematic. Uh, if anybody's ever driven a, um, a Jeep versus a car that's very low to the ground, you'll know that if you go over a speed bump, you kind of sometimes scrape against the ground. 
um, by having the bigger wheels than MER did, you're able to go over a lot more of those particular rocks and not have to worry about them. They become less of a problem. Um, we've learned on Curiosity we had problems at uh, Dingo Gap of getting over sand, um, getting up and over a sand patch. So we kind of understand that we can't get over that. Those wheels, um, uh, we learned how to drive backwards to save wheels on, on, on MSL that we will learn on Curiosity. I mean, uh, excuse me, Perseverance. Mm -hmm. um, the, the wheels themselves, we go actually very relatively slow. I don't, I'm not sure what the speed limit is. Um, but we end up going on, on Curiosity 80 to 100 meters a day. I think it's an average. Uh, it's a good, good day for Curiosity. And hopefully we'll be able to push that a little bit on Perseverance. Um, we have a proven landing, landing system on Perseverance. Uh, we're using the Skycrane, exact same uh, design as we used on uh, Curiosity. Hopefully that will um, enable us to get uh, to within a smaller and smaller um, place of where we want to go on the ground. So what happens is, is that the original landing systems were uh, had a landing ellipse, which is basically where you land that were very large, hundreds of kilometers. We've now lowered that down into the tens of kilometers range because the landing systems have become better and better and better. And if you're going to send humans, you really need to even reduce that even further. But the landing system now has enabled us to go to Jezero Crater, which we would not have been able to go under old landing systems because it's too hazardous. But we've reduced the, the error the, the, where we can land uh, greatly. Um, you, and we use a lot of the same parts to do that. It's been um, – the design is, is solid and, and been tested. So it enables us to take a little – you know, go to do things that we haven't been able to do before. So this is uh, – just, just to confirm, this is the same landing system, but it sounds like – was there a few upgrades to make it a little bit more precise too? There is a different feature on this landing system called terrain navigation. Cool. Um, and so what we're able to do is we're able to when – we, when we hit – uh, when we go down through and we're in the, the final stage of descent, uh, the rover has onboard images of what the what the landing ellipse looks like, and it can tell whether it's in a spot where it, this might not be the best place to land us. So let's move over a little bit, and that's that's a new feature uh, with this rover that we didn't have on the last one. The last one, we we you know we could go down and and and, and lower everything down to the surface, um, and and. and Landing, landing on all four wheels or six wheels and just move off. This one allows us to go to a spot that we wouldn't have been able to go because we have the terrain. We're able to avoid terrain that we can't get to in the past. The EDL system operates, you know, you, you go in 17, it's about 17,000 miles an hour when you get the top of the atmosphere and seven minutes later, you've got to be going zero miles an hour. Uh, there's a great video online of describing this call called the seven minutes of terror uh, that describes the entire EDL system. And it's all automated and it happens all, it just, we just turn it on and we, we let it go. Um, and we find out whether or not we landed or not, but it's the sky crane, sky crane configuration. We hit the top of the atmosphere going 17,000 miles an hour. And there's a heat shield that heat shield dissipates heat in the atmosphere. It slows us down to, uh, um, I'm not sure what the miles an hour is, but we then uh, lose the heat shield and we open up a parachute. That's a supersonic parachute. It's a very large parachute, which then dumps more energy. We slow down even further, but we get to about uh, a couple of kilometers above the surface and then we're on retro rockets. So the landing system itself takes over and it's an active landing system. And the sky crane itself 
what it's kind of like uh, um, the the landing system and is all over the rover and the and basically the rover gets lowered to the ground by a rope, and then the rover hits the ground and then moves off on its own power. Um, it's really cool to watch. It's a really cool video to uh, to see how it all works. I loved that video, Seven Minutes of Terror, especially back in 2012 when I was following Curiosity. I watched that over and over and over. It was just fascinating. Um, is this is this landing system the one you're describing for Perseverance? Are there elements of this? Because I know when I was reading the description of um, Perseverance and some of its objectives, one of the things was improving the techniques for landing. Is this one of those things that might actually help us the landing of perseverance might actually help us understand how eventually to land humans on Mars. The answer to that question is I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I do know what it what it does do is it's completely instrumented, and so it understands the nature of the Martian atmosphere better. And by that, we can design better landing systems. I think there's probably an upper limit to how much this landing system can land. In fact, I know there is because I've read some of the mission architectures for potential humans to to Mars. And so they all have different landing systems associated with it. But giving this gives us information on what that atmosphere is like in the higher, in the higher um, above the surface. And so we can get take that information and design better systems. And that's that's the important part of the EDL system for for eventual humans to Mars. I don't know whether or not this scales to to full human uh, activities. That's a lot more mass. Yeah, no, yeah, sure. Not necessarily design, but understanding what the environment is that you're dealing with, that's got to yeah. help for sure. Um, yeah, it does. And, and it, adds, it, it basically it flows all into that. Um, and and we, every time we land, we learn something new, and it's, it's, it's good. Perfect. Um, you, you mentioned uh, some supersonic parachutes. There's a lot of crazy engineering that's going into the landing here, and I know just from, from curiosity, a lot of it is familiar to me, but for Perseverance specifically, some of the development of testing and of some of those things to make sure Perseverance is going to survive the journey. Yeah, testing is, is uh, we joke all the time that uh, testing is always nerve-wracking because you've You've spent four years building something, and then all of a sudden you go in to test it, and you, you just hope that it, it works the way everything is supposed to work because it really puts the uh, uh, you know it puts the needle to the te- needle to the test. There's mm-hmm. a better act. There's a better description than that. <laughs> so what happens is that we had to test everything, and so um, if you remember back to what I was talking about with the Mars exploration rovers, everybody talks about the fact that they were only supposed to exist for 90 days. But really what that means is that all of the instruments and all of the hardware was, were, were tested out to about three times life. So we, te- we test, we test, we test, and we test for three times what the, what the eventual life is going to be. We don't test things till they die. We test things to make sure that they work for three times what the nominal lifetime is. Mm. And what that means is, is that Mars is a very difficult place. Mars, uh, every day on Mars, the temperature swings are about 100 degrees so centigrade, which is about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So imagine going from uh, ice freezing to boiling, freezing to boiling, freezing to boiling every single day. And all of the hardware has to work uh, through those environments. It's also a very, very dusty place. It's very, there's dust gets into everything. You can see pictures of Curiosity now. I have one in my office where there's dust just littered across the deck of everything there. Uh, It's also got a very low atmospheric pressure. Which, cha- which adds some complexity to things like high voltage and, 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 and other things that we try to do. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you, you 
make the hardware, you put it in through these tests, the, the, the hardware has to go through these dinarial cycles, basically zero to, you know, from zero to minus 100, zero to minus 100. It's got to go through 3,000 cycles of that. And it's got to work, and it's got to work every single time. And uh, um, it's and everything has to, and everything is tested under relevant Martian conditions. It's a principle here called test as you fly. And so um, we've tested uh, our 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 hardware down to minus 110 degrees. The Sherlock hardware down to minus 110 degrees. We've tested it up to 50 degrees C because when it's flying in space and it's flying in that that. That uh, the heating, the back shell, um, it does get it gets much hotter than it ever will on the surface. But you have to make sure that the instrument can survive those conditions as well. So it's it's test, test, test. Make sure that you you take everything that Mars can and throw at you, and continue to make sure that everything works that way. Um, uh, it also has to undergo shock and vibe. You know the launch uh, conditions. Everything gets shaken up during launch. There's a shock when it hits the atmosphere, so everything gets, you know, really hit hard with a shock. And every all hardware has to work through all of those conditions. Um, and uh, you you continue to test, and you just, and, you know, you, you go into a test, and you just pray, and you pray, and you pray. And it's it's funny because then sometimes when things don't work, you have to figure you have to go back and figure out why it didn't work, whether it was a problem with the test setup, whether it was a problem with the test design, whether it was a problem with the hardware. And then you've got to redesign the hardware to make sure that it works in those particular tests. Um, uh, and it's uh, it's nerve-wracking. It's a very nerve-wracking because you could be working on hardware for four years and you put it through a, a test and it doesn't function the way it's supposed to function. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, we're back at, you know, we're not back at square one, but, you know, oh, God, how do I fix this? <laughs> So, so we're recording this in the middle of June now. Perseverance, I'm guessing at this point, made it through the ringer, survived all the all the tests. Everything seems to survive. Uh, we did the thermal test here. We have a big, you know, these things go into big giant chambers. We take them, we take the whole thing down to minus 100 degrees. We pump all the atmosphere out. We see what's going to happen. We test it on different rocks and things like that, and everything passed. It's at the Cape right now. It's all. It should be all buttoned up here shortly and uh, getting ready to be put on the, the rocket to be launched. And uh, it's a very exciting time. But, I, I, you know, we talk about the seven minutes of terror, and, and it's funny because when we were landing opportunity, I mean, excuse me, Curiosity, one of the other engineers looked at me and said, you know, I've been working on Curiosity for seven years, so they should really do a seven years of terror. I just don't <laughs> believe that the, the video would be all that interesting of just us sitting around just panicking of all the things that could go wrong. And, and everything, you know, we think about everything that could go wrong uh, for multiple times. So Yeah, that'd be a long one to watch yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, so, so not you, very interesting. Yeah. So you talked about um, you talked about designing it. You know, when, when you're talking about mission duration, you know, uh, you you talked about the Mars Exploration rovers being designed for 90 days. I think it was like, um, you know, designing for three times the. I I forget the phrasing exactly what you said, but I know the um, Perseverance is tested for one Martian year, 687 Earth days. Does that mean you tested it to make sure that it's going to survive 387 Earth days at a minimum? Uh, yeah, it's no. You, so it, if it's six, if it, it's ninety days, we tested for two hundred and seventy days. Got it. For uh, perseverance, it was it's uh, close to seven hundred days, so we tested for twenty one hundred days. It's a lot of testing. Yeah, it is a lot of testing. <laughs>
For sure. And it's a lot of worries because every single one of those testing cycles, you're, you're worried about what's what's going to happen. Um, but it's it's good engineering and it's very good engineering practices. Not everything can be tested that way because there are some things that are are considered consumables. But So you have to really figure out what's going on um, and make sure that you've You've thought of everything uh, in those cases, and then you get waivers and, and get reviewed. But you, they take a really fine look at anything that doesn't get tested for the 2,100 days on perseverance. Hmm. Very cool. So before we go into um, the science, I did want to tackle the, the mission profile here for a second. Right now, we're in the middle of June. It's scheduled for a July 17th launch date. Um, I know that there are constraints with making sure that Earth and Mars are aligned. So July 17th, I'm assuming, was picked for a very specific reason. It is. So actually, I think I think as of this morning, um, the earliest launch is now the 20th. I think we've, we've slipped three days because of a, an issue at the Cape. However, um, yeah, so what happens is, is that Mars and Earth are, are continually moving. And so what you're doing is, is you're launching from Earth to Mars. They have to be in the, the right uh, state in, the, in, the, uh, in their orbits. You can't only launch to Mars about every 26 months. So there's about a three- to four-week period where that launch window opens, depending on where exactly they are in the orbits. And so you launch, and, and you're, you're, the, the spacecraft itself basically in Mars get to the same point at the same time. But it takes, you know, seven months for it, to, seven to nine months for it to get there. Um, so Mars and that's and so there's a launch window where it opens up. Uh, I said you said on the 17th of June, July, and it ends like the first week in August. We are going to land, however, at the at on February 18th at a at a certain time, <clears throat> and you can plan that exactly, and you need to plan that exactly because there's a lot of orbital assets, the Mars uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter (MRO). Um, Mars Odyssey still, um, uh, MAVEN, that will be taking measurements as the, the spacecraft is going in. And you need all of those orbital assets to be in the correct spot at the correct time. So you know exactly when it's going to land, but you get like three to four weeks of, of when it can possibly launch. Got it. Okay, so that's we're still within the window. We've we've at this time we've slipped to the twentieth, but we're still within that window. It is you. You mentioned the Cape. We are launching from uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station down in Florida. Um, it's going to be launching on a ULA Atlas V five forty one rocket. Um, it is going to be well. Actually, before I get to the landing site, I did want to ask about the uh, profile of how it gets there. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it does a couple orbits around the Earth before a trans-Mars injection or if there's anything fancy in between. No, it's a direct, it's a direct injection. It's Got it. a type 2 or type 3 orbit. Um, it just goes straight out from the Earth and straight into uh, to Mars. Perfect. Now, the landing site, you've already mentioned this uh, before, was Jezero Crater, and you said that uh, Jezero Crater... Is, is a bit more hazardous, but this new landing system is, is able to, to get us to this area. What's so interesting, and actually, what's so hazardous about Jezero Crater? So Jezero Crater, where we're going to land is we're going to land really at the base of a what, what looks like a river delta. Um, and, it, and by all indications, it was a river delta. So Jezero Crater is a crater uh, in near, north, north, near northeast Serta um, on Mars. Um, and it's there's ample evidence that there was liquid water in this crater. In fact, you can see the one riverbed come in. Uh, it's got a, a beautiful delta, um, a, you know, dried up delta uh, where at the base we're going to land. And then at the other side of the crater, there's a place where the water used to go out into, a, into another basin. 
So we know that there was water. We know water came in. We know water was there for a while, and we know it, it flowed out. So this is a really cool place to go look for life. Now, the reason why it's a little bit hazardous is that river deltas do have, have um, uh, you know, structure to them. So you don't want to land on the side of a cliff. You want to land on a nice flat surface. And so because we have the terrain navigation uh, uh, feature, we can, move, we can move away from the, the, the cliffs and actually land on a flat surface, and we have that ability. And so Jezero is, is really cool. It's got a lot of mineral diversity as well. So there's a lot of different things on the bottom of the crater that we can go look at. And really what we want to do is we want to get a for sample return uh, and understanding what Mars was like in the past. We want to get a lot of diversity. Um, we really don't, you know, you think about how far we've actually driven on Mars and how far we've actually explored. We've sent a lot of spacecraft there and we've spent a lot of missions there. But the longest mission that's ever been there is 28 miles. Uh, that opportunity drove 28 miles. Uh, Curiosity uh, had, was up to 13 or 14 miles as of last summer. So the total mileage that we've driven across the surface of Mars is only on the order of 50 miles. And, you know, you can only really get out and touch a couple of meters on each side of the rover. So if you think about that, you think about what the Earth is like and the diversity of different places on the Earth, um, you need to get out and try and go to different things. The, the Sahara Desert is much different than the Amazon, which is much different than Siberia, which is even different than the Mojave uh, uh, here in, in Los Angeles. Um, 50 miles is not even half the distance between you know, Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, for example. So it's re really um, looking at diverse sites, looking at different places in Mars, trying to figure out all of Mars history, and that's really what we want to do. So Jezero Crater has a lot of that stuff, and that's why we're going there. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say 50 miles. My, my commute to and from work is more than 50 miles. So to put it in perspective, yeah. the total amount of of, cover, of area we've covered on Mars is less than my daily commute. Um, yeah. that's, that's, that's definitely saying something. But even, even what you're saying about Jezero Crater and the, 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 you know, where, why we're landing there and what is there from a scientific perspective, that sounds so exciting. Yeah, if if there was a place on on Mars that that had ancient life, this is one of these would this would be one of the you know places that you would actually go look. If there's hydro, there's evidence of hydrothermal activity on the on the the floor of the crater. Um, the fact that there's water coming from different spots along the way. We we like chemical gradients for life. We enjoy things, uh, and we we enjoy looking. We, we enjoy looking for things like that. Um, and, and that's really, really what makes Jezero really fascinating place to go. And it's, it's going to be really interesting. And, and what's really cool is that when we land, we, um, we're, the plan is to go up the, the delta. So we'll basically be going back in time because uh, the, the stuff further up will be younger than the stuff at the bottom. And so we'll go, go through different epochs of Mars. And eventually, we're going to head to a place called Northeast Serta, which has a lot of really cool formations and mineralogy as well that we've seen from CRISM. Uh, and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Um, it's a fascinating, diverse place uh, that will lead to a lot of really good um, just, um, uh, scientific papers and understanding better of what Mars was like when it had water. Oh, for sure. So exciting. That's, that's just that whole mission profile. You just want to follow along every step of the way and, and see what's discovered along the way. Um, yeah. Let's get into the science. Let's get into the fun stuff. You've already said um, one of the one of the objectives here for the scientific objectives: um, seek signs of ancient life. That seems to be one of the top ones. Yeah, it's and, and that's it's 
that's an inter- it's an interesting concept seeking signs of ancient life what we what we say a lot is we want we're going to look for potential biosignatures and hmm. we use these words very carefully um it's very difficult it's easy to discover uh alien life if it looks like et in, or Chewbacca, or you know the aliens from Independence Day. That's easy to see. What we what we expect Mars to have had is microbial life, and if it had microbial life, it and it flourished on the surface. It was three four billion years ago when Mars had liquid water. If there's life on the surface now, near surface, it's 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 exceedingly rare, and it would be very difficult to find. Um, and when we look at what's happened on the Earth in terms of ancient life. Uh, and our understanding of what the Earth is like. There's still a lot of arguments on when we go to different formations. For example, the Australia Pool Formation in Australia, there's evidence of 3.5 billion-year-old life in some other places. And there's a lot of scientific um, debate on whether or not these are really biosignatures or whether they were created by life or not. And we know life exists on the Earth. We don't know that about Mars. So we, we continue to say potential biosignatures because we want to make sure that if we see something, um, we study it and we know that it, it, it was basically biotic in nature. And so we want to go seek things that we look at and we go, well, that's really fascinating. It's very difficult to make that without bio, without bugs, without microbes doing the work. Let's bring that sample back to Earth and, 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 and analyze it in the laboratory um, and analyze it with much with as many instruments as we possibly can to determine whether or not that was alive and get scientific consensus on that. So and what, that's, oh, sorry. that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna I was gonna ask, I was gonna follow up with some of the instruments on board Perseverance. What's on board Perseverance? What kinds of instruments to to look for some of these biosignatures? So we have a few we have a few instruments on Perseverance that um uh are not necessarily doing the bio uh, the, the biology part of it, or the potential biosignatures detection part of it, uh, but they are doing very valuable scientific research because, like I said before, you need to understand the geology of the site, mm-hmm. you need to understand the chemistry of the site, you need to understand everything about it to understand the bigger picture. And so we have a few. We have the one instrument uh, um, is RIMFAX, which is a ground penetrating radar. It'll let us know what's in the subsurface. So that'll give us an idea of what this, what the history of this particular site was, because we'll see structure in the subsurface that we've never seen before. So as we're moving along, uh, RIMFAX looks down and understands what's going on in the subsurface. We have META, which does is the met, metro, meteorological station. It does temperature and pressure and wind speed and wind direction to understand the climate of Mars, so that we can understand better what's going on in the whole surface of Mars. Um, and then beyond that, we have uh, MathCam-Z, which is a, 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 a twin imagers on top of a mask and that can look out and it'll take, take the great pictures, the panorama of where we are. It'll be able to see geologic, geologic features and understand where we are. We'll be able to get a great picture of, the, of where we are at the base of the, uh, uh, the, base of the delta. Um, we have MathCam uh, with SuperCam, which is a remote uh, Raman a spectrometer, lid spectrometer, and IR spectrometer, and it'll tell us in the distance what's in what's the mineralogy like of the site we're in. Is that is that mineral? For example, is that rock over there? Is that an aqueous rock that it only could have formed under underwater, or is that rock basaltic? Uh, could it only formed uh, through a volcanic process? 
and things like that. So that'll help us understand the entire site. Um, and then we have two instruments on the arm, uh, Pixel and Sherlock. Pixel is a microscopic elemental abundance mapper. So what it does is it looks at the elements uh, in a particular, particular sample, so we can tell the history of that sample a lot better. Um, it can identify some potential biosignatures because life likes certain elements over certain other elements. Uh, and then we have Sherlock, which is on the principal investigator of, which then will go in and look for organic molecule distribution. It is an instrument on the robotic arm, too. We'll be able to look for um, organics. We'll be able to look for minerals. And more importantly than just looking for them, uh, we'll be able to put them in context. So we'll, it will take an image, we'll take a picture, and then we'll be able to tell whether or not there's layers of organics or there's layers of minerals. And that helps us a lot uh, understand the, the history of that sample. And all of these... All of these instruments together, um, because there's so many imagers on board, we can look at all of these, all of these results we're getting back from uh, the same sample and with multiple instruments, and that tells us a lot more about a sample than we would with just looking at one instrument at a time. And the last instrument that I haven't mentioned yet is, is an instrument called Moxie, which is uh, um, a, a precursor for a, a, a in-situ resource utilization ISRU instrument which is going to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and it's going to take that carbon dioxide and make oxygen out of it. And what that is going to show is we're going to show for the first time that we have a, um, the ability to make rocket fuel, which is oxygen as part of rocket fuel, and whether we can make something that the astronauts can actually breathe in uh, when we get to the surface. Um, and that's, uh, that's really, really cool. That's, that's the, one of the first steps of, of sending humans there. And the last thing that I haven't talked about is the helicopter, which is uh, the first time we're going to try a quadcopter on the surface of Mars. Uh, it's a tech demonstration, um, and so we're going to see how that works uh, in the first 60 or 90 sols uh, on, the, on the red planet. And that's going to be able to take off, uh, fly for a couple minutes, take images, um, and then relay it back to the rover. Uh, and eventually that will lead to a better way of roving around the red planet. Um, but all of these instruments operating together is, is fascinating. It really is a payload that's been thought out in terms of, these, in terms of identifying biosignatures uh, and what could potentially be a biosignature and what potentially can't be a biosignature. And it sounds like it even goes beyond that, um, you know, potential biosignatures. It sounds like it's understanding the environment. Um, there's the, you talked about the meta instrument, understanding, you know, what's what's going on with the weather and the dust. I love the the uh, aspect of human exploration and, and in situ resource utilization. That's going to be huge, a, a precursor mission, sure, but but that's a that's a huge step towards uh, humans living and working on Mars. That's that's a big one. Yeah, and living off the land is, is really important if you're going to send humans. Uh, you can't send everything with them. It, it, it's way too volumetric, and it becomes very uh, costly uh, really t relatively quickly. Um, but, yeah, you, I, what we learned from Viking really was that, that, was that you need a better understanding of everything to, to, to really understand what the biology is like. Um, Meta does a lot more things than just understanding the wind and everything else. We can we can look at the humidity levels, whether it's changing with time, whether um, something from the subsurface might be you know influencing what's going on in the near surface climate. That's really huge. Understanding the amount of UV radiation, they'll be able to measure that. 
uh, to a very precise level. Um, and that, that goes back into what the chemistry is on the surface. So, you know, everything acts together and we're, you know, all of the, all of the payload elements works in a really good solid team. And, and what we can do, you know, is it, Sherlock can, does adds on to what Pixel can do, which adds on to what Supercam can do. Mm. And you get a lot more information when you're looking at something with multiple instruments, which is why sample return is so fascinating. So when you send something to Mars, you know, you've got, you send it, you design your instrument four or five years and before you send it, uh, and you 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 plan on what it, what you're going to go see, but you're never 100% sure what you're actually going to get when you get there, um, because if we knew what we were going to find, we wouldn't send anything in the first place, because you know that would be dull and boring. <laughs> but by finding, but by going out there and doing the exploration, is when you see when you see something, you know, most scientific, most great science discoveries are always, you know, you, you just never eureka. It's, wow, that's really weird. Let's, what is that? What is, what's going on there? And so having all these instruments together um, enables us to do that. And what, what's going to happen is, is we're going to find something that looks kind of live, that might be alive, that we're going to be able to capture that particular sample. We'll seal it up. We'll bring it back. And then we'll use every instrument on Earth to look at that particular sample and then come to a scientific consensus, hey, Mars did have life, or no, there was no life associated with that. And that's the power of sample return. Um, and we have a well-characterized sample, which is even more important. It's not just a random piece of Mars that just ended up in Antarctica, because we find pieces of Mars all the time in Antarctica. But this is a well-characterized, not transformed sample that should revolutionize what we think of Mars and Mars history. This is fascinating. There's so many interesting instruments on board looking at all these different as aspects but man that sample return is so exciting it just makes you want to just let's go to mars and pick that thing up and bring it back you know i'm sure i'm sure there's like a ton of scientists that want to get their hands on on that first you know sample return from from mars that's that'll be a that'll be a big deal yeah it will be and and, and you know I don't, the funny thing is is that it, it, depending on who i'm talking to i get very excited about either the in situ science it's the first time the in situ science on this is fascinating as well yeah. this is the first time we're actually looking at microscopic type samples on mars so uh, we have the ability on sherlock we're looking for organics and minerals on 100 micron that's the size of the human hair scale and what we're doing is we're able to take those that data and we're able to look at a postage size stamp so we're looking at every 100 microns, we're looking at something that, that you know, we'll be able to map out and we'll be able to look at a sample and say, look, there's layering in this sample. And this particular organic matches with this particular mineral, and that's fascinating. How could those, how could those have existed at the exact same time? And then we'll take pixel data on that particular sample and say, look, that elemental abundance, that elemental abundance is really, really strange. I think that only biology could have done that. We're definitely going to pick this sample back, and we will learn a bunch of stuff on the surface. The science will be great on the surface, and then we'll, we'll take it another step by taking the samples back and then doing even more stuff with them on Earth. And that's, that's where all of the power comes in because the more things, the more time, the more instruments you can look at a sample, the, the more you learn about that sample and the more you learn about history. And it, it just it, it, it takes everything we want out of a mission and put, ties a nice big bow around it. Well, this is this is actually a, a perfect place to wrap up, um, because you know you talk about you talk about all these things that we're looking forward to learning. Uh, we started this conversation with with thinking about all the different ways we visited Mars in the past uh, through all of these different missions. You know, I'm sure there's folks out there thinking like, 
you know, why are we, why do we keep going back to Mars? What is there? What is there that's so interesting about Mars that we need to go back and back and back and back? What would be your response to to someone who's asking that question? Why it's so important to go back and continue to learn new things? It's a great question, and the answer is we know Mars had everything we needed that, that is needed for life to begin. Back at the same time life started on the Earth, it had liquid water. It had energy sources in terms of both solar radiation and hydrothermal and volcanic activity and chemical energy on the surface. And it had organic molecules. We know all three of those things. So the big question is, did life start on Mars? And if it didn't, why didn't it start on Mars? We've lost a lot of the information on Earth on the conditions that were like back when Earth, when life started on the Earth because we have plate tectonics. Rocks get Rocks come and go. Rocks get destroyed. They get remade. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence of rocks that are 3.6 billion years old. Mars has no plate tectonics. So Mars, the, the conditions of Mars 3.6 billion years ago have only undergone chemical alteration, not geologic alteration. So if life started on Mars, that's fascinating. If life didn't start on Mars, that's fascinating as well because we, we might be able to figure out what was different and what 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 stopped life from starting on Mars or what created life on Mars. Either way, it's a fascinating answer. And the last thing is, is that because Mars was like Earth and and Venus probably was like Earth at one point in its in its long in the past. Now Venus is way, way too hot and Mars is way, way too cold and Earth is perfect. So we've got three planets all started in the same spot in the solar system, relatively. One is too hot, one is too cold, one is just right. So when you look out and we look out at all of the exoplanets that we found, and we're up to about 5,000 exoplanets, the question is, is that how many of those could possibly have life associated with them? In order to make that calculation, we really have to understand what's the difference between Venus, Mars, and Earth. Hmm. And this mission will help do that. This mission will help understand why Mars is different and what what, what the differences are and what makes it important and what doesn't make it important. Does, does life have, is life easy to start or is life hard to start? Either way, it's a fascinating answer. And it really does tell us a lot about where we are and where we've come from and where we're heading. That's beautiful. You know, you know, there's probably so many, and there has to be, so many people that, that you're working with on a day-to-day -day basis, all contributing to, to Perseverance, yes, but to the many other uh, missions to Mars and truly believe all of these things. They, they have this passion, the, the same passion that I'm hearing from you about exploring Mars and understanding that. Just, you know, what is it like working with the team at JPL and with all these PIs that are contributing and, and wanting to learn about Mars and, and that, that passion that exists in this community? So we, there are probably, I don't know, a thousand people that have worked either directly or indirectly on, on Perseverance, not just at JPL. We have co-eyes at, at JSC, we have co-eyes at Lanol, um, we have co-eyes at, at Goddard. Um, there are people all over the country that are working on this this particular thing, but it is fascinating. And, and it's not, in JPL, we just don't think about Mars. We talk about how Mars is different than Europa, which is a, a satellite of Jupiter that has more water on it, liquid water on it than the Earth does. There's life there, is life on Enceladus. And we talk about these things all the time, and it's it's a fascinating place to be because you can start asking questions that 
every normal people look at you like you're insane um, when you ask, but you're like, well, no, no, that's the, that's what Titan is like. Um, you know, the hydrocarbon lakes of, of, you know, bubbly benzene and other things. And, and it's 90 degrees Kelvin. Uh, could life exist there? Could life exist there? And you start thinking about, you start thinking about these things in terms of all these different conditions and, and it's just some great conversations to be had and, and great philosophical discussions. Um, the, you know, the, the, going back to the Mars question, if Mars didn't have life, that's, that's pretty big. If Mars did have life, that's pretty big as well. And either way, you, you, you start figuring these things out and you start thinking about what does this mean for us as a species. And it's, uh, it's great. And the teamwork is also great. I, I can't, on Sherlock itself, the, we had, you know, 50 to 100 people working on it for all of our co-eyes and, and external partners. And, and every single one brings this really great enthusiasm to the team. Uh, and it really worked as a great team. Um, and I know that other instruments feel, feel the same way and other portions of the rover felt the same way. Like there are there were hundreds of different companies that contributed to the, the design and build of this um, in different states and different places and, and you can always you can always when you call them up and you start talking to them you realize how proud they are of being able to help do this and it's it's a great experience well luther I, i'm sure a lot of people are feeling are feeling pride um just just even listening to you describe all the different contributions and uh, honestly i you know i just i just wish the best to to all the team that contributed uh, so many different parts to this mission uh, whether the engineering, whether the science, and there's 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 just a lot to look forward to, and and to you, Luther, I really you know best of luck to you and and to the Sherlock team, and I really appreciate your time for coming on the podcast and and explaining this fascinating this fascinating uh, rover and everything on it. It's it's been it's been super fun. Really appreciate your time. I I really appreciate being here. Any any time, any chance we get to talk about it um, is is great because it really helps us get enthusiastic about you know about doing the day-to-day job because because it's uh um it's fascinating to bring to the public so thank you very much for having me i really appreciate it awesome let's get this thing to mars yeah absolutely Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really had a great time with Luther Beagle today. He was so passionate about the Perseverance rover, and I hope it gets you excited for the launch coming up here soon. Go to nasa.gov to find the latest details on how you can watch the launch. If you like podcasts, you can go to nasa.gov slash podcasts. There are a lot of them. You can listen to any one of the Houston We Have a Podcast episodes in no particular order. Uh, We have a lot of those as well. If you're interested to learn more about Perseverance or maybe one of the other rovers or landers or orbiters that are... uh, on or around Mars, you can go to, or to mars.nasa.gov to learn more. If you want to talk to us at Houston, we have a podcast. We're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on June 10th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Cheryl Warner, Gray Hatalama, David Agel, Mark Petrovich, and Andrew Good. Thanks again to Luther Beagle for taking the time to come on the show. 
give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us how we did. We'll be back next week.